Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, as vaccine rollouts ramp up across Canada, provinces struggle to get the third wave under control. We'll get the latest on the federal pandemic response from Health Minister Patty Heidi. The battle over Line 5. The Michigan governor has threatened to shut down a crucial pipeline carrying Canadian oil. What's at stake for the Canadian economy and what's being done to head off the Wednesday deadline. And the controversial bill to regulate streaming giants is put on hold over growing mixed messages from a cabinet minister over the weekend about protections for freedom of expression. Our Monday panel of parliamentary journalists will be here to weigh in on that and more. Let's begin with the latest on COVID-19 and the ongoing third wave of the pandemic as vaccine supply increases in this country. So do vaccinations across Canada and some provinces bring in even tougher restrictions. Patty Haidu is Canada's Minister of Health. She is with me now. Minister Haidu, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. Nice to see you too, Peter. Look, Canada's receiving another two million doses of the Pfizer vaccine this week alone. It'll ramp up uh, as we get into the month of June as well. Uh, provinces are stepping up the vaccination schedules. But we have seen this mixed messaging from Health Canada um, and the immunization experts on the desirability of the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Now we're hearing from some provincial health tables saying they are actively, uh, these discussions are live now about uh, how to administer those two vaccines. What, what kind of conversations have you had with your counterparts in the provinces about uh, whether or not there's the possibility of shelving AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson? Well, first of all, let's be clear. Every vaccine that is licensed for use in Canada is safe and effective. Uh, Health Canada provides the licensing for use. And NACI provides advice in terms of how best to use the portfolio that we've procured. And we know that some vaccines uh, are better used in certain settings. Other vaccines that have different requirements can uh, be used in yet other settings. And so, of course, provinces and territories are constantly assessing how to best use the vaccines available to them, especially given uh, supply as it comes into Canada and the predictability of that supply. Right. So you are, are you having those conversations now with provinces suggesting, look, we may not want to uh, we may not want to administer these vaccines at some point. Has it, has it come to that? No, I, I would say, Peter, that what is very clear is that, again, vaccination is being uh, deployed across the country in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different settings, utilizing every vaccine in our toolbox. What we know is that uh, the advice from NACI has evolved, as we've understood better, how best to deploy those tools in our toolbox. And furthermore, what we know is that the vaccines are working. They indeed are saving lives and stopping the spread. As we go along, we'll be assessing every step of the way uh, what the future deliveries look like and what the best mix is for Canada. And uh, the provinces and territories, of course, have their own advisory panels that allow them to decide mm -hmm. how best to use the vaccines that they're receiving through the federal procurement process. What do you think it says about... Um about the vaccine rollout in this country when we're starting to see uh, different jurisdictions, Alberta, Manitoba, the city of Windsor, all approaching the United States for extra vaccine supply. What does that say to you? 
Well, I'm not sure what it says, Peter. We've received 18 million vaccines into this country to date, 16 over 16 million of those administered. I think, you know, our procurement strategy has been strong. We all know that in the early days in January, a number of the companies had some ramp up challenges, but after getting over their capacity to scale up their manufacturing processes, the deliveries have been constant. They've been stable. And we've been clear with the provinces and territories every step of the way what they can anticipate. I, I will just say, look, uh, those conversations are ongoing, I'm sure, in provinces and territories about how to quickly get to their goals. But there is no shortage of supply coming into this country. And I would encourage everybody uh, across the country to stay focused on the main goal at hand, which is to make sure that as many Canadians get vaccinated as quickly as possible, that we hmm. do everything in our power to save lives and stop the spread together. So what is it? So the city of Windsor is trying to trying to get healthcare workers bust across into Michigan to be able to get extra vaccines out of Detroit. Um, you, you're saying you don't think they need to do that? There's no rush for them to do that? I, Listen, I can't speak to why the city of Windsor would be pursuing that. I do know that we have a long and very integrated relationship with the United States and Windsor in particular has integrated healthcare services. So perhaps there's something, um, a, you know, an arrangement for healthcare workers that are working in American locations to get vaccinated quickly in American sites. But I, I can't speak to their decision making. What I can say is I'm confident in the supply that we're receiving across the country. And again, 18 million, over 18 million to date, 2 million more this week, 2 million the week after, mm -hmm. and so on and so on. And so we anticipate that, you know, we will have every Canadian with their first dose, you know, by mid-July, you know, maybe even earlier if we continue to proceed in the way that we've been going. And the focus needs to be on making sure that uh, we are vaccinating in ways that reach the, the, the very eager that want to be vaccinated right away and those that are having a harder time getting access to vaccination. All right. As, as more and more Canadians are getting vaccinated, uh, a lot of them want to know what freedoms vaccination will allow. Uh, when will we see guidance from the federal government on life after vaccination, as it were, if, if, as we've seen from the Americans? Well, we have been providing advice to Canadians, as you know, Peter, and of course, our vaccination strategy is to get everybody that first dose as quickly as possible uh, so that we can save as many lives as possible and we can really reduce the spread. And it's working, actually. We're starting to see a real precipitous drop in infections, in particular in areas that have been really hard hit that have used vaccination in this way. And uh, we'll continue on that path. Of course, uh, the CDC guidance has not given direct uh, and very you know, I would say robust directions because, of course, it, it reflects the uh, different epidemiological situation across the, the American country. Uh, we, you know, as I said, have will have um, more guidance for Canadians soon in terms of what they can anticipate. And I know uh, provinces as well are working on guidance that's very specific to the epidemiology in their regions. All right. Uh, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, um, you know, is sort of ratcheting up uh, the criticism of the uh, federal government, of, of your government, its response, particularly when it comes uh, to the borders. Um, there's a growing effort by the Premier to blame your government for the third wave of the pandemic. W what's your response to what's coming out of the Premier of Ontario? Well, well, first of all, as the health minister for Canada, I stay focused on what matters, which is really making sure that I'm doing my level best to support every province and territory to do two things. One, obviously continue to immunize and continue to have the tools that they need to reach Canadians no matter where they live and no matter what their circumstances. And 
two, to help pr support uh, provinces, including Ontario, to manage uh, whatever COVID throws at them. And in fact, we've been there for, an Ontario, for Ontario, as you know, uh, with uh, additional health human resources, vaccines, support with uh, contact tracers, with the Red Cross. Indeed, the military went into long-term care homes, as you know, in both the first and the second waves. And so we will be there for Ontario. We'll be there for Ontarians. And that's what I stay focused on. What Doug Ford's asking for specifically, he wants everyone entering Canada by land, including those Canadians who fly to a U.S. city near the border, Order and then get driven across and go on their on their way to be required to quarantine in a hotel for three days. Um, he's also now uh, really asking for all air travelers landing at Pearson Airport from other airports in Canada, uh, so domestic travelers, that they all be subjected to PCR testing before they board a flight for Ontario. And we now see evidence uh, today that 60% of the COVID cases linked to air travel are now from domestic travel. Do you think there needs to be more steps taken uh, to control the spread uh, of the virus uh, from travelers going back and forth in this country? Well, I'll say this. Uh, the Premier has every tool in his toolbox to do a very, very thorough job to ensure that people are uh, quarantining when they're sick to control domestic spread in communities that are seeing tremendous case growth. That is the focus that we all have to have now, is the real risk to Canadians, which is domestic spread. We need to, of course, continue the measures at the border. And we have, as you know, added layers upon layers of uh, measures for international travel. Uh, in fact, uh, I would say that the Premier knows that international travel is down by 95% from pre-pandemic time and the majority of the international travel that's happening now is essential workers and some Canadians with the right to return. Right, but what so about Canadians flying from airport to airport in Canada? That's how, they, that's how the numbers suggest the spread is now taking place since the month of April. Well, we do see, as you will note, the Atlantic provinces that have had uh, a very thorough measure of quarantine and checking on travellers to make sure that those travellers are, in fact, not... Um, not infected and not spreading COVID-19. Again, the Premier has uh, many, many tools at his disposal to ensure that people that are infected with COVID-19 within Ontario don't go on to infect other people, including the millions upon millions of rapid tests that uh, have been shipped directly to Ontario and okay. that are being provided to the essential workplaces through our government. All right, Health Minister Patty Heidi. Uh, thanks for your perspective tonight, Minister, and your time. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, the clock is ticking down to a Wednesday deadline for the potential shutdown of the Line 5 energy pipeline. Line 5 was built in 1953 and supplies 540,000 barrels a day of western oil to Michigan, Ontario, Quebec, Ohio and Pennsylvania. It runs across the narrow waterway connecting Lakes Huron and uh, Michigan. And the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, has ordered Enbridge to shut down the pipeline by this Wednesday, calling it a ticking time bomb. In the House of Commons today, the opposition pressed the federal government to take action. Mr. Speaker, I can assure this House, we are looking at all our options. We will leave no stone unturned in defending Canada's energy security. We will work at the political level, at the diplomatic level, at the legal level. We are ready to intervene at precisely the right moment. We are standing up for energy workers. We are standing up for energy consumers. And we are standing up for energy security. People will not be left out in the cold. 
Warren Mabey is the director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Professor Mabey, uh, thanks for your time tonight. I do appreciate it. First of all, what is the significance of Line 5? Uh, explain to our viewers how important it is to the Canadian economy. It's actually a very, very important uh, energy connection between us and the United States. Uh, it carries just over half a million barrels of oil every day uh, through the state of Michigan into Sarnia. So it's feeding oil into Sarnia, into Ontario, and that oil is further distributed into Quebec. So about two-thirds of the oil that is used in Quebec and about a little bit over half of the oil that's used in Ontario uh, every day passes through Line 5. It's incredibly important to those economies. All right. As, to be clear, so that people get a sense, you know, this supplies the jet fuel for Pearson Airport, uh, for all kinds of uh, refineries and so on. So it, it is a big deal. And, but it's also important to the U.S. economy as well, correct? It is important to the U.S. economy. It's part of the whole integrated energy infrastructure that we share between us and the U.S., uh, a lot of the oil that passes through Line 5 does originate in Alberta or sometimes in Saskatchewan. Uh, so we are seeing Canadian product passing through. But, you know, Canada and the U.S. have benefited for many, many years of developing this integrated, uh, highly connected network of, of pipes that feed different portions of our economy. What effect would a shutdown have? I'm going to get to in, in a moment to whether or not we're actually going to see one in the next three days here. But uh, what effect would a shutdown have? Well, in the short term, we're going to see a bump in prices. Uh, almost certainly across Ontario and Quebec, we'll see uh, prices at the pump go up for gasoline and for diesel fuel. Uh, we'll see increased surcharges for aviation fuel. We'll see increased prices for propane. And, you know, we forget that a lot of people still heat their homes with propane and, and rely on propane for cooking purposes. So there are products that we depend on that are going to become more expensive as the refineries and the suppliers have to find alternative routes. How likely is it that uh, we'll see Line 5 actually shut down uh, this coming Wednesday? Well, it, it's looking more and more uh, like something that could happen. You know, for a long time, this sounded like something that uh, nobody would allow to happen, that there would be enough uh, pushback from the Canadian government, from the Ontario government, Quebec government, uh, that uh, Michigan would stand down. But Governor Whitmer ran on a platform that she would see this line shut down. She's using really every tool in her toolbox uh, to have the line shut down, at least temporarily, while they're looking at this uh, connection under the Mackinac Street. And this is uh, now looking more and more like something that could happen. But, you know, people point out, look, uh, people who are uh, tamping down the fears a little bit, say, look, there's no way this can happen. Uh, pipelines in the United States are uh, a federally regulated uh, jurisdiction. I mean, it makes you look, how, how could the governor actually force the shutdown of the pipeline? People are you know, creating these images, what does she do, run down to some pump somewhere and turn off some valve? No, it's not that. Uh, how could she actually get this done? So she is using the court systems, and there's an effort right now to move it from federal courts into the state courts, which would be a little bit more favorable, maybe, to the case uh, that the, the governor is making. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, pipelines are a federal jurisdiction, and there is a treaty which governs pipelines between uh, Canada and the U.S., uh, which would come into play with this connection. So this is something where you could potentially see the president involved, and certainly you could see the Prime Minister involved. 
Because en Enbridge has said, right? Enbridge has said it has no intention of shutting down. It's in the court process. Actually, they're in, I think they're in uh, some sort of mediation at this point ahead of, I think their next meeting is on Wednesday, which probably isn't going to be, uh, you know, the time frame won't allow some sort of agreement as the, as the shutdown approaches unless they, she puts off the shutdown. I mean, who, whose who's ball is the court really in here? Well, I would say that right now uh, the governor is is moving things forward. You know, this is moving on uh, a very aggressive gen agenda that the governor has set. Uh, but you are right; the courts are there, and the courts are uh, acting in order to you know protect the interests of the company and protect the interests of uh, the um, the industry itself. Uh, and that will mean that you know there's a lot of different ways that this could come out. I guess is what we could say. Yeah, I mean, Enbridge points to the pipeline safety record. No spill in 65 years, but look, there are First Nations groups in Ontario and tribal groups in Michigan lining up against this, uh, lining up on the side of the governor. Uh, you know, what is the long-term viability of this pipeline, even if there isn't a shutdown in the immediate future? Well, certainly we're starting to see the writing on the wall against a lot of these major energy infrastructures. There are serious concerns about the long-term safety of these pipelines. You know, it does seem... Uh, that, you know, the older a pipeline gets, the greater the uh, likelihood that something could go wrong. You know, maybe the, the odds are increasing in favor of something going wrong. And we're seeing increasing public pushback. And so there is some indication that as time goes on, we are going to be stepping away from these major pipeline infrastructure towards other things. And at the same time, we see electrification and we see people moving away from gasoline and, and diesel-driven cars, which is going to reduce the demand for those products. So, you know, will this pipeline still be here 65 years from now? I'm guessing probably not. The real question is, how long will it take to really shut it down? And how can we do it without damaging economies on both sides of the border? Yeah, fair enough. Back. Two quick questions to finish here. In the event of a shutdown, how does oil get to central Canada? So there's a few short-term things that could happen. Uh, certainly there are rail and truck options. Uh, truck is really a non-starter. It's so expensive to move uh, vast amounts of oil by truck that it would only be done on a short-term basis. Rail is a little bit more likely. There's also the opportunity to use the seaway. So uh, it would be possible to put oil onto barges or onto ships and move it through the seaway. Um, all of these things though, involve greater risk than the pipeline that they would be replacing. And so that's one thing I think environmental groups need to think about. Uh, are you trading one certain uh, risk for more uncertainty and more risk in other options? All right, Professor Warren, maybe. Uh, thanks so much for your time here, sir. Uh, good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for having me. Federal government's embattled bill to regulate streaming companies operating in Canada is now on hold after the committee studying the bill asked for the Department of Justice to issue a new statement on whether it violates rights to freedom of expression of social media users. The move comes as the Minister of Heritage faces continuing criticism over a changing message on whether his bill will result in the regulation of content from individual social media users with significant online audiences. 
over the weekend, the minister had yet another blunder. Every time he goes out to, quote, clarify the intent of C-10, he makes things worse. Within 24 hours, he had to issue two clarifications and an apology. It's obvious this minister doesn't know what's in his very own bill. It's so bad that just moments ago, the parliamentary secretary had to do the press conference instead of the minister. So why does the government continue to try to defend the indefensible? Honorable Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Speaker. If conservative members truly care about freedom of speech, then they will let our democracy continue its work freely. This bill won't regulate the internet or what people choose to post online or even view online. Not at all. Individual activities are explicitly exempt from all three requirements above. Freedom of speech is not negotiable for our government. It is explicitly protected under this act and in our Charter of Rights and Freedom. We will continue to abide by it. We will let the committee pursue its work. And if that means a charter review that needs to go on, we will happy to, we were happy to do so. Well, it's Monday. And as always, that means we spend some time with our regular panel of parliamentary journalists, Susan Delacorte, columnist with Toronto Star. Joelle Denis Belavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Uh, Susan, let me, let me start with you. And we now have uh, on C-10, the controversial bill on, on changes to the Broadcast Act and regulating uh, big streaming entities in Canada. Uh, it's put on hold now at committee while we get a charter statement, while the ministers come back to testify that no... This bill will not infringe on individual rights of expression for people, uh, you know, uh, ordinary social media users uh, using the Internet. And uh, we've seen messaging back and forth from Stephen Gilbo, the minister, uh, driving this through Parliament. Uh, What do you make of these latest developments and how the minister's handled all of this? I I think it's, uh, let me say diplomatically, it's a good thing he has five days to try to pull some sort of story together. Uh, Over the weekend, we saw him on TV uh, the minister is saying that uh, individual users wouldn't be punished on this or wouldn't be subject to regulation unless they had a lot of followers. And that just opened the door. Again, we, the, the problem is, is with the Internet, if this doesn't sound too existential, we, sometimes we're users of the Internet and sometimes we are producers. Sometimes we consume things, sometimes we right. produce it. And this bill is having a really hard time distinguishing between when we're one and the other. And into that blank, the Conservatives have walked saying, look, you as a consumer of social media, you're going to be punished on this, Uh, or as a user of social media on this. And today in the House, it was, if you were an artist, you were going to be punished by this. And um, I, I think... The problem is the min- this is the, fir- the minister's first real test on this, and so far he's not doing all that well. John, John, what do you think of how this is being handled by the minister? And the, the, we've seen a number of flip flops here. What's happening? Yeah, well, he's not so much driving it through Parliament as driving it off a cliff. It's, it's almost like he's trying to sabotage <laughs> his own bill. I mean, the, the things seem to be resolved. The, the, there was a furore in committee, an amendment came in, so it's clearly not going to affect. Uh, users of the internet and then suddenly he appears on tv and said well it might yeah and then he had, then he had to cl- clarify his own statement now that you know this is a like basically saying you know won't affect individual users on the internet uh, uploading content unless you get really good at it unless you get good at it, and then <laughs> so you know there's a disincentive um you know and this is the 
a number of communications issues that the government has had in in, uh, in recent days with, you know, should you take the AstraZeneca va uh, vaccine, for example? Well, one day everybody should take it, take the first vaccine. The next day the health minister says consult a doctor. Mm -hmm. So there have been a couple of in instances where I think that um, uh, they've kind of lost their... Uh, lost their sparkle when it comes to, uh, to crafting the message. Right. We haven't, at least uh, yet, J.D., we haven't come to the question of whether Internet social media users should pick one vaccine over another. We're not there yet, but <laughs> that, that's still an open question. What do you think of how this is being handled and, and uh, the blowback the government's getting on this because of this mixed messaging and what this bill will actually do? Well, it needs the rubber or the approval of the justice minister to be sure that it does not affect freedom of expression. So, the government has to do a lot more work to convince people that it doesn't have the adverse effect because Mr. Gilbo failed to communicate a clean, clear message on his, the intentions of his bill. Now, I would say that Stephen Gilbo is now joining a growing list of ministers who have trouble with their messaging. Uh, I would add to that list Stephen Gilbo and also Arjit Sajan, sorry, the defense minister. Mm. So it's not good for the government to have trouble in, uh, expressing clear messages on key issues that are affecting our, the government right now. Let's talk about the messages going back and forth between Ontario and the federal government, Susan. Uh, you know, Doug Ford's ramping up uh, the criticism of the federal government's response, especially when it comes to travelers. And, and one of the things he's asking for, though, is uh, the government's firing back, saying, look, uh, uh, tell us what other tools you need. We're here to help. But by the same token, you know, we've seen some numbers today that show that uh, since I think it's April, uh, uh, the vast majority of the spread of COVID-19 is actually coming from domestic travel from one part of Canada to another. So, I, I mean, does Doug Ford have a point here? I just finished talking to the health minister in the program about whether they need to take further action to control domestic travel and more testing for those people getting on a plane in Calgary, maybe, and flying to Montreal. Do they need to test those people more uh, and try and stop that spread? So what about this feud here? Where is it going? Well, I think um, I, I wrote about this on the weekend mm -hmm. because uh, we, Dominic LeBlanc uh, fired off a letter to Ontario saying, um, look, what do you want? We asked, you, you know, uh, we're, we're giving you a ton of stuff and what do you want? And uh, Doug Ford has been, his party has been taking out ads. The Liberals know that ads can hurt them. They've seen that happen to leaders before. Uh, I think the the... The, what I find about this confounding is that Doug Ford was doing very well when he and Krista Freeland were each other's therapists last year, when the, uh, he was cooperating <laughs> with the federal government. The more this tension between the two of them uh, increases, and we all see the reason why, the worse he's getting. Ecos had a poll out last right. week showing that only 19% of uh, Ontarians now approve of the of Doug Ford's handling that's down from 80 percent right. last year so I, I think we see what's going on here but um, I, I think Ontarians and both governments did a lot better when they got along you know uh, when, the, when they stopped the silly games JD what do you think well I think that Mr. Ford is trying to salvage his government uh, from going downhill uh, from now on because of the the way he handled the pandemic by hitting Ottawa that's the typical recipe for any provincial premiers who's in, in difficulties in the polls. And But I don't think it will work. Um, Mr. Um, Ford has made some decisions, has, has uh, I think, increased the um, pandemic uh, problems. And he's facing right now the 
criticism of the electorate and he's trying to salvage his government by attacking Ottawa. But I don't think this will be a winning formula for him. All right. Uh, let me get a final thought from you on all of this, John. Yeah, I think uh, JD's right. It's clearly about uh, the, the Ontario election next year. Uh, Ford's numbers have tumbled. They're, they're neck and neck, if not behind the, the Ontario Liberals. Um, I'm not so sure it's unsalvageable, though. I mean, we saw Boris Johnson in, in the UK who was who was uh, down and out, apparently, and yet the vaccine rollout went very well, and yeah. now he's winning by-elections. So, and he's running yeah, around telling everybody in Britain it's time for hugs and pints again. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> things have things have worked things out for the, for, the, uh, for the Conservatives. And, you know, they're looking a year down the road. They're thinking, well, if we, if we keep the restrictions on until June um, and don't do what we did last time, which was take the restrictions off too early and we get a third wave, so as long as we don't get a fourth wave, we roll out the vaccinations and we blame Ottawa for the borders. And, and in some ways, he's got a point on the, the borders. Hmm. The federal government says it's only 2% of people who've, uh, of 2% of cases, yet we know that the variants came in through airports. So right. people, that will resonate with people, I think. Okay, uh, we'll keep an eye on all of it. Uh, thanks again to all of you uh, for joining me again tonight. We'll talk uh, next week. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.